Good evening, listeners. It is the 14th of January, 2018, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Scott Classic. And as that PSA just told us, we have more than 4,000 graduate students at Oregon State in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal story of one of these students each week. So if you are also a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming onto the show, or if you just want to find more about all the awesome research going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out about all of our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are lucky to be joined by Grace Klingus, a PhD student in the Department of Microbiology. Welcome. Hi. And this is the first show of, um, first inspiration dissemination show of 2018, and, uh, what year is it? <laughs> so it's 2018, and uh, that means it's the International Year of the Reef. So it's a um, the idea is to have this year be a, a banner year for better management practices and increased education and awareness of the value of reef ecosystems. So especially important to be here with you guys today, first interview of the year. Yeah, this is really timely. So one, thank you for coming on, and that means inspiration dissemination is really starting off this year right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your search and your involvement with corals and oceans. Yeah. So um, generally my lab, the Vega Thurber lab, we study the microbial communities living inside of corals, um, and the coral holobiont as we like to call it. And we are interested in the role these microbes play in coral health. So we use that term, the coral holobiont, to describe the this interconnected relationship between the coral and not only its symbiotic algae, but also the bacteria, archaea, and viruses that are living inside the coral as well. Um, and just like the human gut microbiome influences how we respond to disease, the coral holobiont uh, influences how corals respond to environmental factors like climate change, um, as well as things like predation and disease. So I'm personally interested in how these microbial communities are influenced by different water quality factors such as pH and nutrient pollution. So uh, just to get a little bit more backstory here, so why could, how could climate change influence coral health? Yeah, so we've all heard about bleaching, which is, is a really hot topic right now. And that basically is when uh, the coral and its algal symbiont gets so stressed out that the coral ejects the algae out into the water. And it's like, I can't even take care of myself right now, much alone you. So it ejects its symbiont, but that's a real problem because the coral's so dependent on its its symbiont for so basically the algae photosynthesizes for the coral and it provides the coral with sugars and metabolic byproducts and in exchange the coral gives the algae a home um, and so that really delicate balance that relationship is disrupted by temperature increase and so we often think of coral bleaching as if a coral's bleached, it's dead. And that's really not true. It's, um, basically, the, it's just a naked coral. It's got no, it's no, got no color. It's denuded of its algae. Um, and after a short period of time, if temperatures don't come back to normal, if they don't decrease by a few degrees, it, will f it'll, it won't survive on its own. It's not getting enough nutrients from the environment. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's really a 
hot topic. We've heard a lot about the Great Barrier Reef is, is suffering a lot from bleaching, even every even more each year. Um, but not just bleaching. Uh, there's a huge problem with nutrient pollution, especially in the Caribbean. Um, we see basically fertilizers, so nitrogen and nitrate and phosphate, exacerbate the n- negative effects that corals are already experiencing. So, like, if there's temperature increase, if there's pH decrease, uh, or if there's a any sort of herbivory from from parrotfish, which is normally a good thing, but we found that nutrient pollution can totally shift the that that relationship, um, and it can totally kick the corals out of whack. Um, hmm. So I'm, I'm going to shamelessly plug some previous guests on Inspiration Dissemination. Mm-hmm. One of them is uh, Becca Maher, yeah. who uh, is also in the same lab. Mm-hmm. And then prior to that uh, is Katie Jejic. Uh, both of those fine ladies do really, really cool research on, on ocean ecosystems, mm-hmm. acidification, um, and they're really well spoken. So those episodes are um, will be coming on a podcast soon. But let's back more up. details to be announced yeah. in further weeks. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to this symbiotic relationship between the algae and the corals. And from a layman's perspective, uh, aka me, uh, the corals need these algae. And the way I was initially thinking of it is that without these two players, then one couldn't really survive without the other. But as your work is beginning to show, it takes more than just these two simple mm-hmm. players. And there's all kinds of interconnected webs and you describe the holobiont. So can you help me understand this interconnected network a little bit more? Yeah. So basically we're, we don't fully understand what a lot of the microbial players are doing in the, in the coral host, but more and more we're seeing that it's, it's a symbiotic relationship, just like the algae, like the, the microbes are providing nutrients as well for the, for the coral. Um, but not just that there's different Basically, there's there's bacteria that live inside the coral that that influence how it responds to disease. So you can have this healthy microbial community, um, and most of the time we don't really, at least our lab doesn't look uh, too deeply at individual species. It's more we look at the ecology of the the, so the community structure and function of the bacteria that are present. And so normally we see across ocean basins there's 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 shifts in the the abundance of different. Uh, microbial species, but generally the same species are, we, we see over and over. Endozocomonas is the most common coral, coral bacterial symbiont. Um, but when we see different uh, environmental factors come into play, you, the microbial community completely shifts. So you get these takeovers by these extremophile bacteria. And and actually some of these bacteria are what you'd see in like sewage and like chlorobii and, and these kind of... Uh, What's the word? They're they're basically um, very tolerant bacteria. They can survive even in the most unpleasant situations. So when you have increased temperature or decreased pH or increased nutrients, some of the things that corals really hate, you'll see these um, rough and tough bacteria become the dominant members. Yeah, so it's interesting. And it sounds like uh, your study research site really is a great area to examine the effects of these potential stressors on coral reefs with the uh, temperature and pH. So can you talk um, a little bit about uh, where you're doing some of your research? Yeah, so um, I just got back pretty recently from being on the Tara Research Vessel, which is um, it's run by Tara Expeditions, which is a French organization. And the boat travels throughout the Pacific studying open ocean and coral reef environments. Um, so we were 
recently in the Coral Triangle, which is basically the, the single area on Earth that has the most coral diversity. Um, so I was conducting research in the Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea, and there's this really unique site on Normanby Island, um, which has this naturally occur- occurring se- carbon dioxide seep. So you have all around beautiful, vibrant reefs, and then suddenly right along shore, it's this, it's this mass of bubbles coming right out of the sand and the seagrass, and it completely shifts the structure of the community there, the coral community, and we expect their microbial symbionts will be different as well. And that's due to the pH um, decrease, I guess, as the carbon dioxide sort of dissolves and equilibrates with the, the rest of the seawater. It's a natural gradient. Right? Yeah, so or, normally corals like pH, and, and normal ocean pH is around 8, 8.1, but in this area it goes as low as 7.2 right on top of the seeps. So we see this really interesting geochemical gradient moving away from about 7.2 to about 8.1, even like just as close as 60 meters away from the reef. And that's a really important proxy for um, ocean acidification from man-made causes. So the decrease even to just 7.8, which is the average pH on the site, that's in line with what we might see in the next centuries. That's like equivalent to a fossil fuel emissions of about 750 parts per million. And so this is a really realistic situation. So the lack of diversity, of coral diversity we see at the seeps is, it's kind of scary, but it it provides us this timeline, this this, this timeline over space, basically. So what we're seeing at the seeps could be the future of reefs. I want to get back to these seeps because uh, as you're describing it, it's it's these bubbles that are emanating from between sand grains and rocks and grasses and it doesn't sound all that crazy, but uh, on our blog we have a video that Grace uh, showed us, and it looks like a forest of bubbles everywhere around you. There's just bubbles kind of coming everywhere from below, and it's not as colorfully vibrant. The coral structure doesn't seem as complex, and and the further away you move from these bubbles of CO2 that are slightly decreasing the pH, the further you move away from those bubbles, then the coral structure becomes more complex. So you get different colors, you get more fish, and then it becomes to be to look more like a healthy reef system. So this kind of time, or I'm sorry, this distance that you're looking over is like a future window into what we expect oceans to potentially look like as we continue on our climate change emission scenarios. Yeah, and that's a scary thought, but what's kind of uplifting to me is the fact that there are corals there at all. We see there's there's basically these very sturdy corals, very tolerant. These are the same species we see as, as being tolerant to bleaching as well. So it's, it's one coral species, Parides lobata, um, and we saw a lot of them right on top of the seeps. But moving away, even as close as really we started seeing conditions normalize about 30 to 40 meters away from the seep, and it's this beautiful reef again. And even there, the pH is not completely back to neutral, neutral being 8 Uh, normal conditions for the ocean. So that's kind of cool that even at this slightly lower pH, the corals are, they're looking really good. And part of that's because this environment's so pristine. There's not a lot of human disturbance, but there is hope for the future. There are corals that are able to tolerate these kinds of conditions. And one of the things that we were really interested in doing at this site was studying the change in coral complexity 
because that's a really good corollary for uh, ecosystem health. So as we know, coral reefs are really great nurseries for a lot of fish. So when we see increasing reef complexity, so basically like the structures, there's more branching corals, there's, there's more coral individuals, you're going to see more niches for other organisms. And um, so you can, you'll have a more healthy fish population. And we also expect to see that there'll be more microbial diversity. And that will help, the, that, that means a more healthy reef. Um, you're not just having these extreme microbial populations. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on, but so I've I've heard of this idea in the general ecology sense that the more diversity you have in an area, whether you're in a forest or in a grassland, but the more diversity you have in an area, the more ways if you know there's some limiting nutrient, then there's some other microorganism that can kind of mine that nutrient. But the more complex the ecosystem is, the more likely they are to be resilient to perturbations in whether it's uh, ocean temperature or salinity or pH. So seeing that, you know, the there are healthy reef systems that are pretty close to um, to these, you know, CO2 seeps, that you're right, it does provide some sense of hope that they're able to make it work, even though they're so close to not awesome conditions. Mm-hmm. So if you if we continue to study these areas more, then we can kind of start to scale up and find out, you know, why are these more resilient or more robust to these changes? So then we can kind of look at other areas and, you know, can we somehow find those best suited or the strongest players and make sure that those are healthy that can then prop up the rest of the system? Yeah, and there are definitely a lot of labs that focus on these coral superheroes and like kind that. of <laughs> seeding the reefs with very tolerant coral species. And I mean, we don't really do that, but um, it's a really excellent, and, and actually Becca talked about this on her interview, this concept of creating like a coral nursery. So you basically take these little corals and create these coral, they almost look like Christmas trees. You're dangling down little coral nubbins so that they have a stable environment to, to grow on. And yeah, that a lot of people are taking that idea and running with it, that there are some species that are more tolerant. And um, that's that kind of brings us back to the microbial ecology because we found that there are especially species of algae that are thermally tolerant, um, but also, yeah, there, there may very well be microbial plants, so bacteria who are thermally tolerant. And it's still a very new field trying to figure out exactly what these these tolerant organisms are doing. Um, so mostly what I was doing on this project is just figuring out who was there, but that's a really important first step to figuring out what they're doing. I, so, I, I want to ask about how exactly you found out who was there. Cause you're not only a scuba diver, but you're also a computer programmer, which I wouldn't think of those two <laughs> things being under the same roof. So uh, how about you briefly describe the computer program that you're developing that will really help your research, but then also researchers from around the world? Yeah, so so not the the less glamorous side of my research. Like ninety percent of the time, I'm at my desk tapping away and coding. But <laughs> really nice to to get out into the field every once in a while. But um, yeah, so uh, basically, what we do to figure out who's there is we study the 16S uh, ribosomal RNA gene, which is kind of a fingerprint for that each, each, it's un, a unique sequence for each bacterial species. Um, and that's when we study even just one coral individual, we'll get 
thousands of these sequences. So we have these huge data sets. And that's a, a big problem for biologists is how to process these massive uh, data sets. And it, that, there's just too many species or players to know what to do with. Yeah. So uh, what do you do? Yeah, so you, you, you code. <laughs> so um, my coworker, Ryan, and I, uh, we together we developed a bioinformatic pipeline. So that bioinformatics is basically um, – the way a, com a computer can take this massive amount of data and parse it into something that we can understand. So species names, ultimately. Uh, so we created a series of scripts um, that take raw data and ultimately give you abundance information for each microbial species. And the idea with this is not only to standardize a pipeline for our lab, but the idea is to make it useful for the Tara Pacific Expedition uh, you can just put in your raw data and get out microbial diversity information. And that's really useful for both people who don't know how to code and also people who may not be familiar with microbiology. So there's a lot of other people working with us who study different things, who study the corals, um, who study ocean diversity. So they might, they might study the plankton, but there's so many correlations between like there's, there's having a data set like, like Tara does it's really important to develop a standardized method that other people who might not know, know what we do can plug their data in and say, oh, well, actually, it turns out we do have microbes in the aerosol samples, for example. Like there's, there's collecting microplastics on the boat, and perhaps they're collecting microbes as well and not even realizing it. We should also mention that the Terra Expedition Project goes like really around the world yeah. taking – water samples, air samples, samples everywhere. So, you know, the pipeline that you developed is not just for your specific area or study, but for the entire TARA project and potentially a lot more other people that are working in similar ecosystems or even nearby. So that's that's really exciting, not just for you, but then for other researchers who are, like me, not not genetic not geneticists so having a tool like that that's really easy to use is yeah and then the other thing it seems like with field work a lot of the time you're collaborating with people from very different areas especially like if it's a multidisciplinary research expedition right so um yeah, yeah getting an aerosol chemist to um <laughs> get some microbial useful microbial data out of any of their samples that they take you know it's a lot easier if they can just press a button instead of mm -hmm. um you know having to choose which you know subunit of what are OTUs <laughs> <laughs> so for those that are just listening this is inspiration dissemination a radio show where we speak to graduate students about their personal stories and research each week today we are joined by Grace Cleus from the Department of Microbiology and I'd like to ask you more about the maybe fun side of your fieldwork aspect where you were scuba diving out in these incredible places. So can you just describe what it's like to scuba dive out there and go from, you know, the CO2 seeps that looks a little dull and gray and then go slightly further out where there's these like incredible colors and ecosystem that's, you know, totally intertwined? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been diving since 2011, so not that long, all things considered, but been to a lot of cool places and I have never been so impressed by the amount of coral diversity as in the coral triangle and just so healthy. There was no evident bleaching, but yeah, that very small spatial scale that we were looking at was the spectacular change in complexity and colors. And you're just wowed as you move into from this very sparse colorless environment right at the CO2, CO2 seeps. And then 
not so far away, it's this beautiful, healthy reef environment again. Um, and that site is really special, um, especially to the local community. Uh, they, so I knew scientifically I really wanted to work there, but um, I didn't realize how much opportunity we'd have to work with the tribe that lives there. And they are so, they're so proud of their site. And uh, when we first got there, we were talking to the the chief of the tribe that lives there and, and we're kind of rambling about our science. Um, <laughs> and the, the Tara expedition really prioritizes explaining what, what we are, what we're t- like, what kind of samples we're taking and emphasizing that we're not harming the reef. But so he's listening very quietly. And, and then we start talking about the CO2 seeps and he goes, ah, yes, the bubbles. And they're <laughs> so, they're so interested in it. They're, even if they don't understand exactly what's going on they're they know it's different. I mean, you can't catch fish there. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, I was just going to say like, you know, imagine if someone showed up in your backyard and spoke a foreign language and sort of poking um, and prodding. Yeah. And- that, that might be kind of weird. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's a real problem in a lot of field science is, uh, and I've, I've been calling it parachute research. It's this, um, the idea of people showing up at a remote location and doing their science and, and just getting in and getting out and not making a connection to the community. And I think that's a really flawed mindset. I mean, it's the people who are living at these sites are the people who are most affected by the science. So it's all well and good for us people living in Oregon to care about reefs and to, you know, talk to students around here. And it's obviously important that we everyone cares. But ultimately, these are the people whose livelihoods depend on the fisheries, on the reef environments. So the Tara Expedition Group really prioritizes, yeah, meeting with with locals. Uh, They distribute a lot of educational material. Um, We met with schools. And we actually, one of the days when we were processing our samples on the boat, we had this gaggle of kids watching us. And uh, it was so cool just getting to explain like okay i'm gonna take my hammer and my chisel and chop up this coral and and they were fascinated they i'm sure that they'd seen scientists before but i i think it was really educational for a lot of the kids to come and talk to us and see what what we were doing especially as as women um there were a lot of women in the tribe there and they were like yeah we want to be scientists when we grow up that was so cool. <laughs> that sounds that sounds really cool. I, I want to emphasize the fact that the Terra Project itself really tries to go back to connect with these indigenous communities. Because like you were mentioning, here in Oregon, if we wanted fish and chips or salmon, you know, we can get fish and chips and salmon. But we're not directly affected on a day-to-day by a slight increase in ocean temperature or a slight increase, increase in pH. But these, but these smaller communities are completely dependent on the ocean and they have been for you know all of their lives so a small change to them makes a huge difference in their diet and their livelihood so i i really applaud the the tar expedition for really making that effort and that connection um because then you know you make you make these impressions on you know the young people in the community that you're also a woman in science and you're doing some really cool science so they can be scientists too yeah um, I want to go back into history and ask you what your first experience was doing science. Yeah, so actually um, my undergraduate degree is completely removed from corals. I've, my, <laughs> I've got a BS in geology. 
Um, and I came into college, I, I did not want to be a scientist. I mean, <laughs> when I applied to school, I went to Haverford College outside of Philly. Um, and I wanted to be either an English major or an archaeologist or something on the more humanities side of things. Um, but I, right before I went to college, I had the opportunity to work in Honduras for a summer as a kind of a field assistant. Um, and I went with mostly because my brother was really interested in science and my sort mom, of dragged you along. Yeah, my mom didn't want him to go alone. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. Oh, so you were there taking care of him. <laughs> <laughs> Make but, sure he stays out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got, we got dive certified there and we worked in the jungle for a while as well. And that really opened my eyes to how cool science is. Like, I really thought, especially microbiology, thought it was more of a medical career. And um, yeah, when I was at Haverford, I um, I was drawn to geology because of the fieldwork aspect. Um, still my favorite part of what I do. Uh, we didn't have a marine biology program at all. So geology was basically as close as I could get. And I started studying basically reef history. So I was studying the evolution of reefs through a geologic geological perspective. So uh, as corals create their own skeletons, they're, they're creating rock. So I kind of studied it from, from that perspective for a while. And um, then after I graduated, um, I was working for the government and I was applying to grad schools. And um, my lab tech was like, Grace, you really like to dive. Like, and you are interested in microbiology. Like, have you heard of Becky Vega Thurber? Um, and he had worked with her uh, at Florida International University. And I was totally floored by her research. Um, I, she's this total hotshot. Um, <laughs> and so really came to OSU for her. Um, but yeah, it just it made sense. Being able to dive, uh, getting to work in these beautiful locales and... Um, yeah, I, my undergraduate thesis was uh, focused on microbiology, but I was working at a decidedly unglamorous uh, field site looking at um, basically like mine tailings in Pennsylvania. So, you know, upgraded to coral <laughs> reefs in Papua New Little Guinea and never looked upgrade, back. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize you could upgrade that far. I'm, I'm messing something up if that's the case. Like several <laughs> levels. So I just wanted to ask you, like, so what was life like on the research boat, ship, sailboat, yeah. right? It's, it is a sailboat, yeah. And yeah. It's, um, it's not very big. It's about 100 feet long. We had maybe a max of, I think, 18 people. Mostly crew, actually, and just a few scientists. Um, and we were the only Americans. We're actually the only American lab that's part of the project. Um, there's other European labs, but mostly everyone's French. And that was totally different for me because I didn't speak any French and really tried, but um, pretty lame uh, French. So, uh, But it was amazing getting to live your science every day. You, we wake up on the reef uh, we're, we're docked or we, we, we anchor right next to the reef. You just can like hop overboard and go snorkeling at these beautiful <laughs> sites. And, um, and there's challenges with working on a vessel. I mean, like a lot, we were really lucky with the weather. It was very calm most of the time, but there were definitely days when we were on a really tight schedule and we would finish diving at a site and we would have to 
to go to the next site immediately. So you're processing your samples on a moving boat. That's moving fast. Uh, so <laughs> you've got stuff rolling around. Yeah. yeah so, fun. yeah. <laughs> but totally an adventure. Um, you know, got to climb the mast and just like jumping off the back of the boat in scuba gear. So cool. And, and working with all these amazing international scientists was just. It was an awesome opportunity. There's a video on our blog of you dropping off the side of the boat, going <laughs> scuba diving. Yeah. Uh, and you're interviewed. So I suggest our listeners take a look at that because it's a really cool interview. You get to see the forest of bubbles. It's really yeah. Neat. If you look in the vi- video, I'm the one with the silly green flowered gardening gloves. So <laughs> that's my sole identifying feature. Everyone looks the same in scuba gear. But <laughs> nice. yeah, amazing opportunity. So with that, we're coming to the end of our show, and we have two traditions on inspiration dissemination. The first is we ask our guests for some advice. So what advice do you have, and who is it for? I guess to people starting out their undergraduate research career, I felt like that the people I met early on were really transformative uh, for the rest of my research, even though I switched fields. And basically to start out in a lab as soon as you can, even if it's not your dream job, my first lab job was sorting bits of volcanic glass under a microscope, just really finicky work and, you know, not something I saw myself doing forever, but uh, just it gets you and you you meet people who will be great connections for you later in life. And and kind of on that note, every connection is a good connection. Um, I, all the way from, from the start of undergrad to where I am now, every job I've had, every research experience has been from a connection from the previous job. And um, so don't be afraid to ask people you're working with for help, for advice, even if it's outside of their career realm. Because everyone has a story. Everyone's got a piece of advice, just like I'm telling you guys now. But um, yeah. That's cool. Um, so <laughs> the second tradition is um, you got a song to take us out on. Can you? Explain a bit about what it is and uh, why you chose it. Yeah, so I chose um, Feel It Still by Portugal the Man, which I'm sure everyone's heard, but it's a great jam. And um, we, so it came out in September when I was uh, doing research with the rest of my lab in French Polynesia. And we had some real late nights processing samples, and we must have played that song 80 times. So it's kind of a <laughs> shout out to the, the girls in my lab. Um, my homies. <laughs> Anytime you hear yeah. that ever again in your <laughs> life, like, you're just oh, going to be taken back to that <laughs> ship in the Papua New Guinea. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you the best in the future. And hopefully, maybe we have you on later this year to keep talking about the year of the read, yeah. 2018. Thanks for having me, guys. What's up?